Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Valence Advisory and Mattermade. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hello, everybody. My name is Arjun Devarora, and I am the founder and managing partner of Valence Advisory. We support founders and funders and help accelerate their efforts via people, strategy, and capital. And now off to John. Thank you, Arjun. So it's John Lowe. I'm Arjun's colleague at Valence Advisory. I'm an advisor too. I'm the lead on leadership and communication and all its facets. And today we have a wonderful funder guest who is also an ex-founder, yeah? Miles Lassiter. Very glad you can join us here today, Miles. And you're a very unique situation where you can answer uh, questions from both perspectives, right? Having been an operator and a funder, but why don't we start with the present state of affairs? What is your current role and what are you working on now? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm Miles Lassiter, as you said, and my journey in business started with starting a company while I was in college grew that and had the opportunity to start a couple of other businesses. I've now transitioned to being an investor. So I'm a founder turned investor. I have created purpose-built ventures and we invest at the earliest stages in companies working to increase human well-being, expand economic opportunity and improve the public sphere. So that's uh, pre-seed or seed investments in companies that are purpose-driven and that are solving key challenges facing all of us. They are largely software or they're tech-enabled, as my background is more in computer science um, and on the tech side, and I've been learning more about healthcare and other fields and how we can apply it. So a lot of problems to solve, a lot of opportunities, um, even more so, it seems, these days. Yeah, nicely said. And Miles, curious, uh, when you made the pivot in venture and, and as an investor, what drew you to get involved in venture? And more importantly, what keeps you engaged and drawn into venture. I found that the things I was doing for fun was helping friends, helping other people start businesses, whether it was through the Yale Entrepreneurial Society, the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute. I was mentoring uh, first-time founders. I was helping them find capital, think about who they wanted to hire, product strategy, keeping their mental sanity, <laughs> just you know, dealing with the challenges of being a founder. I thought, you know, this is what I'm doing as a hobby. Why don't I just focus this more full time? And so I view the role as venture capital, you know, one is uh, making money for LPs in that you're investing and you do want to return to capital, but you're also more fundamentally a service provider to entrepreneurs and they are the center of the story. And they're the ones that are doing the hard stuff, solving the problems, building the companies. And it's so fun to be a part of multiple stories when you're a founder, you get to be part of your own journey and you may hear some about others, but when you're an investor helping to build these companies and backing these companies, you do get the opportunity to be involved in more than one story. And, and that's pretty exciting. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. And just to give one of your initiatives a plug here, uh, you are the owner and writer contributor to Venture Patents venturepatterns.com. So I was going to ask, with respect to the fact that, you know, a lot of personal bias does come into play, what are some of the traits or criteria you look for in early stage founder talent as an investor? There's a long list of questions I ask myself before making every investment. And I would say about half of them are about team. It's a bit of a cliche 
in venture investing, but it certainly rings true for me. That team is so important uh, to the eventual success. I feel that the tools the general venture industry uses to evaluate team are still inadequate. It still feels more art than science, and I keep looking for better ways of doing it. Um, but at the very least, I hold myself accountable to a checklist and a series of questions I ask myself about, you know, what is the motivation of this person? Are they oriented towards being a king, being in control? Are they oriented towards being rich, making money? Are they oriented towards solving a particular problem? Some mix of the three, but you know, where is their primary motivation? Is this someone who has the skills to sell, to recruit, to raise further money? Is this someone who understands the problem or the customer space well enough to have some empathy, which will help them tell the story, but also make strategic decisions about what their customers need? thinking about the team, not just, you know, single founder or co-founder, but that, that senior team, do they have the right mix of long-term optimism and short-term pessimism? And what I mean by that is, and it can be in one person, it can also be in a, in a partnership. So long-term optimism says, we'll figure this out. This is worth doing. It's a big problem. Let's go solve it. We can do this team. And the short-term pessimism is it's all going to fall apart if I don't do these 10 things today. <laughs> you know, it's keeps, that's what keeps you motivated to actually act on it. Because if all of you have is the optimism, then maybe there's less motivation to do work. So those are some of the things, certainly not an exhaustive list, but those are some of the things that I'm looking for in founding teams. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing and being ex- explicating some of that internal process that you have. And and Miles, my understanding is when you were a founder yourself, you had a strong focus on team communications and culture. Was that because you identified that as an area that needed some serious attention? Or was that something that you identified as arguably what you would say was a zone of genius for yours? Then through experience, you ended up translating into your capacity as a uh, venture investor, reviewing deals and identifying the best founder talent you can um, identify through that uh, process. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, It's probably a bit of both. So when I started Hire One, we analyzed the strategic situation as being very important to our long-term success to provide high-quality customer service. And I believe that the best service comes externally to your customers when you have good service internally. And so the most important thing I could do as a founder and as a manager was to help set that tone that I'm here to serve you and you serve the customers. And if people know when they're interacting with a customer, if they know that when they turn inside the company to get help, to solve a problem, they're going to be backed up that they know when they have a human resources issue, a payroll issue, an issue with a coworker, that they're going to get backed up. They are free to focus on solving the problem for the customer. You know, it's not going to be 100% focused, but it's going to be way more than otherwise and more likely to go further for customers and to create that sense of a connection. And so with our university customers, we had extremely high marks on net promoter scores. We had our customer service personnel when they would go on campus would get hugs. We were told we were the best vendor of all in any area that they dealt with. And so those are the kind of relationships that we wanted to build and wanted to have with those university customers. Again, that had to do with the strategic situation they were in. It also lined up with my personal values and desires, which is to build a culture where employees came first, customers came second in our organization. And that's why we focused explicitly on what those cultural values were. We trained on them, we rewarded on them, we had recognition programs, et cetera, et cetera. 
And we were able to win multiple times placement on the top 50 great place to work institute list that's a national list. So it was recognized by employees and it was very exciting to be able to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations again, if you haven't heard it enough. Uh, Looking back now, what was some of the most memorable learnings or maybe like challenges you had as you you were building that company that really stand out as memorable to you, maybe because the learning was so big or maybe because um, you can laugh at yourself and said, wow, I really messed up there. So many things. Where to start? Uh, I think that as a founder, one of the key challenges um, is what I think of as like fire yourself a little bit every day. And I caught on to that maybe a little later than I should. But, you know, there's an impulse sometimes founders who really care about the business to stay involved in the details and you need to be delegating constantly. And so it's not necessarily firing yourself, but it's the list of responsibilities that you have. You got to take some off and some come um, get added on as a company grows and a company evolves. And if you're not taking things off, you won't have time for those new responsibilities. And some of those responsibilities, which will be impossible to delegate, will grow in complexity. A simple example of this, you know, part of our offering was uh, putting ATMs on campus at universities because we had a bank account that students were using and they were drawing cash from it. So when we started off, you know, I had a little help from a consultant picking which ATMs to use. And then I was the project manager in getting the ATMs installed. Then we hired some more people and I was managing someone who was doing it. Then I was managing someone who was managing someone. By the time we had grown, we had a team of multiple people dealing with these ATMs who was reporting to someone who was reporting to someone, you know, into me. So this is what I mean by like constant delegation. That's just in one area. But um, I think if you're not systematic about doing that, so that's one thing I learned. I think another I learned was about engaging with the press and with policymakers early on. If you're going to build a truly influential company, either because of scale or because of a truly new model that those policymakers and press folks can feel blindsided if you grow faster than they realize and they're not kept up to speed. And so we definitely had some bumps in the road um, with regulators, policymakers, others, where they kind of turned around, I think, and they were like, I've never heard of you. Where are you from? What are you doing? You know, and and, uh, we could have done more to brief them, educate them. That's an issue if you truly do scale. That's not for early, early stage founders, but that was a painful lesson that I learned. Thank you. Thanks for being transparent and sharing that. And as you navigated, as you learned and became more seasoned as an entrepreneur, just before you transitioned into being more of an investor and a venture capitalist, what was it like recalibrating your approach to business as an entrepreneur and into more of a venture model? You know, what were some of the personal biases you had to filter out? What I would say are like reflex actions that you had to be aware of. I think that one of the things that makes for great founders is a bias towards action. Sometimes I talk about it as you can't steer unless you're in motion. Try to steer a car or a sailboat if it's stopped. You you can't turn. So you've got to start moving first and then course correct and figure out where you're going. That bias towards action, what's the to-do, what can I do today, I think is really powerful. Again, it doesn't have to be every single person in the team, but you've got to have that strongly in the founding team in some way. And as an investor, your orientation is longer term and it is not always your role to take action. And so that certainly is a shift in mindset for me. You know, sometimes the best quote-unquote action is to do nothing. And that's a very different uh, initial uh, mindset than many founders have. Wow, nicely said. And yourself, my understanding is you've also taken board positions at a lot of companies that 
you've invested in and in being knowing you obviously <laughs> through conversations in the past you always try to do what's right by the founder by the nature of your ethos and your background what do you think makes a good like board member for a founder and what boundaries do you have to be aware of not to cross to still be effective and supportive and responsive but at the same time not like overextending yourself into a zone where arguably you don't have the richest context about the business Right. I think that being a board member can change depending on the situation. So it's not a one-size-fit-all answer. I think that if you're brought in as an independent board member, you may play a slightly different role than if you're the investor who, you know, representing investors on, on a board. In a small private company board, I would expect that you have a good relationship with the founder. That's why you invested, right? And you want to keep that relationship strong while still standing for proper governance and some sense of accountability and what I would call sort of an operational rhythm of reporting. So I'm a believer in, in having regular communication about key API. Um, and about oversight of uh, key, you know, executive hires and compensation, having financial oversight, meaning audits at the right point. So that's sort of the fiduciary responsibility. And that's an oversight role that should come in a very friendly package, right? Like that doesn't have to be adversarial. That's something you're all building together because if you demonstrate proper governance, it's going to attract other investors. It's going to attract the right talent. People will sense that the uh, governments and the, and the companies being run well. I think that the other role you can take is asking questions and being a sounding board. If you have the right relationship with a founder, a lot of work can happen outside of the board meeting. The best is when the CEO feels comfortable calling you, sharing bad news, asking for some feedback, or, you know, not even wanting to make a decision, just saying, it is what's going on. I'm kind of stressed out. You know, those kinds of conversations can be really helpful. So I think defaulting towards sounding board, advocate, questions, rather than thinking, oh, I need to make the decisions. I need to have expertise. Connections, expertise in particular tactical things, when you, there are questions, that's all very valuable. I'll tell you an example. When we were a public company, we had a public company CEO on our board. We were talking about how to communicate certain information information to public company investors around guidance. And he spoke up. He didn't speak a lot uh, in our board meetings, but he spoke up and he said, you know, that's a solved problem. And this is how you do it. And it was a tactical question we were asking for help with. And it was so valuable. It was like, okay, we didn't know that. All right. That's what you say. Great. We'll do it. Um, but he was always very respectful not to step in with a bunch of advice at the wrong time. So I think that's a valuable skill. Yeah, thank you. And for you, becoming more of a board member and advisor, having been an entrepreneur, did that transition to that stance come naturally for you? Or was there a bit of like clunky transition where you had to be aware of your founder instinct coming up and uh, trying to yeah. take control of the show? <laughs> Um, I'm sure I've made mistakes. I would say in general, that's something I've been very aware of in the transition. And what stayed top of mind for me is thinking like, what would I have wanted as a founder? Just like in a situation, if I were the founder, how would I want the board member to behave? That's been helpful for me in guiding my that's behavior. I see, said. Yeah. Yeah. Point on founder empathy and the importance of founder empathy. So, yeah. I understand now with Purpose Built VC and investing in early stage founders and companies, that is some something you've started in the recent couple of years, is that correct? Yes. As you grow out the Purpose Built VC team, uh, can you share a bit more about like what the ethos you want to instill into Purpose Built VCs looks like, what the culture is that you'd like for your firm, mm -hmm. and how you'd like to be memorialized in the eyes and ears of founders present and emerging? 
Yeah, Purpose Built Ventures is about building. It's in the name, right? So <laughs> I want to be seen as a partner who is not viewing the relationship as stock picking. You know, some investors are like, I'm going to buy this stock and, you know, that's where I add value. Yes, the decision to make uh, a capital investment is a very important one and does drive returns for VCs. Yet, I think the best VCs have a mindset also of being in the trenches with founders and helping to build. And so that is one of the things I hope that founders remember about us. Thank you. And in light of recent mass events and having been a founder yourself, any words of advice or none regarding the times that we as a, you know, a collective are all navigating? Many of us are quote unquote stuck at home, right? <laughs> we have the opportunity to have so many things canceled in our life, whether we were looking forward to them or not. And that creates a new kind of space, which can be scary and can generate anxiety. If you're not one of the people who is on the front lines with healthcare or making sure people are fed or one of these other essential businesses, you may have a lot of time on your hands. And if you're someone who's dreamed about starting a company, particularly if it's software or tech enabled, you can do that at home. And you now have your schedule completely cleared. And in some ways, what better time to start a software business? You can be heads down building a product. You can not be distracted. And some of the best companies have been started when there's an economic downturn. You have less opportunity costs for your employees. You have a shakeup and people are thinking about, well, maybe that other job isn't so secure anyway. Why don't I throw in my hat with this startup? You have customers, particularly in an environment like this, customers who are doing new things, new ways of behaving, and that will create new needs and opportunities. So I don't mean to say like this is all good. There's a lot happening in the world that's scary, that is sad. If you're lucky enough to be one of the ones stuck at home and you've wanted to start a business anyway, go for it. Great. Thank you, Miles. I think that's a great way to leave the mic on the table. Thank you for sharing so much wisdom, insight, and being transparent about your personal experiences. It's been a very enjoyable half hour with you. <laughs>